Did anyone have any questions from any of their reading or any questions at all? Yes, Sharmila. No, no, we had that. This was the conversation. We had. We talked about it in the car going home last week, I remember now. Um, the question is, if the guru comes, if the guru incarnates because he knows there are disciples there who need him, sort of how does that all work? Because people sometimes seem to go through more than one path, especially people in our culture will start out as a Christian and then will end up here, maybe even still with a deep devotion to Christ because it's part of this path. So let me try to think what the... I'm draw, I, I have to draw now on something that Swami Kriyananda wrote just recently, which all of you received in the email, and if you didn't, please ask us for it. It's an essay called, uh, Who is Your Guru, essentially? Is your guru Yogananda? Is it Krishna? Is it Jesus? And he's going to put it in a book of essays, but it won't be published for a while, and it was such an important piece, we shared it with you all. And he really traces out this question of the singular guru for all time. I have always felt, just speaking personally, a little bit uneasy with that concept. And of course, it's presumptuous of me to feel uneasy with the concept that you're guru is known by God and that it's one guru through all time. Um, and I don't know exactly why I felt uneasy about it, but I think I felt uneasy about it because of the effect I've seen it have on people. Um, I, I, find it, I find it a sort of a confusing um, concept to swallow when so many of us, and I speak for myself too, our consciousness is just not that clear and that we often have to go through so many stages of development. Plus, there's always been this very confusing issue in our own path, which is you have Master and then you have Swamiji. And Master plays such a vital role. I mean, Master is this, the source of it, but Swami is such a central role in the whole reality of it. And then you have this line of gurus, and you have people such as yourself or many others who feel this primary devotion to Jesus, but yet in truth it's Yogananda's um, expression of the teachings that's putting it forth. And are you really Jesus' disciples or Krishna's? That's exactly why Swami named it that. Because in India, their thought would be that they all belong to Krishna because he's sort of the maha-avatar of, of the whole culture. The same as Christ is the maha-avatar. Maha means great, the great avatar of the whole culture here. But Yogananda's the one who's interpreting him altogether. So... And yet, this deeply held and taught by wiser heads than mine idea of the guru intended by God and yours through all eternity is not something I could presumptuously speak against, but I've never articulated it because I haven't known what to do about it. Um, so in this paper, Swamiji writes, and he actually mentions it in here too, although he doesn't expand upon it to such a great extent. And he, he quotes the simple biblical phrase, um, even uh, that many baptized in Jesus' name, is how he puts it. Let me see. You know, Jesus himself did not baptize, but the, but the disciples baptized for him. That's how he puts it, or something close to that. It's a quote right out of the Bible. Um, and Swami comments that when Yogananda was alive, even when he was alive and active, much of the time that was the disciples who gave the Kriyas. 
So it was actually the disciples who initiated because that, that's where the touch came. And Master makes the statement, and Swami repeats it in, uh, in this book also, so these are all intersecting, that Master said there has to be one physical contact with the Guru. But of course, there's been a very logical thought that I've played out all this time, which Swami didn't mention in his paper, but it's always seemed true to me, which is that avatars have many, many disciples, but they don't incarnate that often. Whereas their disciples, which is us, obviously have to have many incarnations in between the times when, when what such ones will incarnate, because we, it takes us a lot to work through what's given to us. I was always, I've always been very touched by something that Edgar Cayce actually said on more than one occasion in the readings that he did. Edgar Cayce was a, a, a seer who used to go into a deep trance state and then he would do life readings for people. And, and he seemed to be a very true channel for higher consciousness. But he often told people that they had been with Christ. He didn't often, but he sometimes told people that they had been with Christ or they had seen Christ or they'd been on the street and Christ's garment had you know, brushed their hand. And that was the most significant event. And they were still working with what had been generated by that contact. All these many incarnations later, um, in the Indian scriptures, it says, one moment in the company of a saint can be your raft over the ocean of delusion. In, in the chapter in this book called The Spinal, The Highway of the Spine, Swami talks about how we, we have to generate this magnetism to raise the kundalini up our spine. And there's many ways to do it, but one of the most powerful ways is the magnetism generated by being in proximity with the consciousness of a soul whose kundalini is raised, just like a, an unmagnetized bar of steel becomes magnetized by being in that company, because what makes it mag magnetized is that all the molecules are aligned. And when it's unmagnetized, they're going every which way. So you can just sort of see it, that you're standing there, and this electrifying force of the person of Jesus Christ crosses in front of you, and everything in you, at least for that moment, aligns with that. And when it aligns, then all your whole uh, magnetism, your reality is completely shifted. And there's a glimpse of that for however long you hold it. And that escape from ego consciousness into super consciousness can be the force that guides you continuously. It can be what makes you come into another incarnation with this determined belief that there is another reality. I mean, I've often puzzled over the fact that many of us were born with no, for no apparent reason. I mean, nothing in our culture or our environment supported the thought. And yet there was this deep and compelling conviction that there was another dimension to reality, even if it couldn't be articulated in words. There was just still this knowingness. And that's the power that's in, implanted by these great ones. So what Swamiji writes about, again, going back to this document, he's, he quotes a few important statements of Master. There has to be one physical contact being one of them. And then he, he uses the simple fact that Master used his disciples to initiate. And on another occasion, Master said, you know, <clears throat> for those who fall by the wayside, I or one of my disciples will come and pick them up. And so you ask the question, like, but what, what would be the, 
the instrument for the master's consciousness when he's not physically present. And it seems so self-evident that what is being transmitted is a ray. And, and we, from our perspective, because we're so ego-identified, and when we look at a body, we can't help but assume that there's an, uh, an ego in it, and that what functions through that body is as ego-identified as we are, because that's how human beings are. We project on others whatever reality is our own reality. Uh, a number of years ago, it's very interesting after so many years of, of sort of being progressively with Swamiji for all these years, which some of you have had quite a few years, um, and he, he writes faster than we can read, and he certainly puts out um, deep and profound thoughts faster than we can integrate them. You know, we're, I'd say on the average, about 15 years behind him. And it's only like slowly over time, and I, I honestly and truly believe for generations to come, people will be knitting together the threads of what he's done. But quite a number of years ago, I lose track of time, but it was quite some time ago, Swamiji came forth with this very powerful thought, which he emphasized very strongly, to think of this path as a, a, a ray of divine grace. I mean, that sounds like simple words, but rather than thinking of it as Yogananda, think of it as the ray of consciousness that comes through, that comes through Master, that comes through this line of gurus. And that ray is not in its nature different from divinity itself, but it has a certain characteristic, just like we have these stained glass windows and during the daytime, the sunlight will shine through, but it'll break in, in different colors depending on where it's shining through. And so there's, there's many different rays of, of the sunlight, but they'll come through in different ways. So you can have a, a completely other path, the ray that is Buddhism or the ray that is some other Sanatana Dharma path, Ananda Ma's path as an example. But then there's the ray that is defined by this line of masters. If you think of it as a ray, then, and, and if you think of it in, in an essence that our relationship is with that ray, then the, the, the human form, the human body that embodies that ray or reflects it to us, it doesn't actually define the ray, it's just merely the way that we see it. And when those masters, all of these masters here, Christ, Babaji, Yogananda, in their consciousness, whether one is acting or the other is acting, you have to understand that from their point of view there's no difference. Because there's no attachment, there's no definition, there's no coloration of the ray because there's no ego consciousness to color it. So from our side, we, we sort of make these pictures. Is, is Jesus my guru? Is, is Krishna my guru? Or is Yogananda my guru? As if each of those things had some kind of a reality that's very important to us. But Master always talked about it as the, the line of gurus, which in a sense stands in complete contradiction to this idea that you have this one chosen guru. But you could have Krishna as your guru and then he reincarnates as Babaji. And Swamiji continually raises the very real thought that it's possible that Jesus, uh, that Yogananda himself was the, the avatar Jesus. Master wouldn't answer the question directly 
But Swamiji's impression, he says, as he put it, the more he worked on this book, the more he worked on this Revelations of Christ, the more he just felt the unity of those two consciousnesses more than just the ray, but the actual um, incarnation of the individual. That's, of course, nothing Master claimed, although he claimed it. Well, he claimed it almost directly. He called his work the second coming of Christ. How much more direct can you be than that? But he never took it personally. And when Swamiji asked him if he was, in fact, Jesus in a previous incarnation, Master's answer was a marvelous, marvelously off-putting. What difference would it make? That's what he said. Because it just wasn't something he could claim. But Swami, you know, without asserting it, reflects upon the possibility. So at least you have, in the case of Babaji and Krishna, and thinking if we were Indians who might be devoted to Krishna, all of a sudden there's Babaji in the picture, and Babaji himself declares that he was Krishna, so who is my guru, Babaji or Krishna? When they take different forms, and Swami, to make it even more confusing, Master actually said that Babaji was his guru, and that he was Arjuna. You see, he was our, Master was Arjuna, so you have to stop and think about it. Master was Arjuna, he was a disciple of Krishna. So he comes in this life and he's a disciple of Sri Yukteswar. Well, Sri Yukteswar says to Master, he says, he met. remember he met Babaji at the Kumbha Mela? This is an autobiography of a yogi. And in the Kumbha Mela, Babaji says to Sri Yukteswar, I'm going to send you a disciple for training. And so if Babaji is sending him, then who is in command of Master? Is it Sri Yukteswar or is it Babaji? Okay, so the end point of all of that is I think we should just follow the devotion of our heart and not worry about it. Okay, then I'll come all the way to Swamiji, which is a very important place to come to. I mean, Swamiji j- just says quite simply, who else would be giving the master to people except those disciples who have devoted their life to doing that? And whom else would they be giving except the master if their devotion is true and attuned? So the the ray that would come through a disciple like Swamiji and many others. Swamiji then, he he traces it down. He goes much farther than just himself. He speaks very clearly about himself. But he also places it, he turns it in his way. He turns it as a responsibility to everyone who is devoted to this line of teaching. That it is our responsibility to be literally the living presence of the master to everyone we meet. And especially to seek to serve the spiritual well-being of others as an instrument of the master. And he doesn't do that in a sense of, oh, look at me, I'm the instrument of the master. It's like, what else would you be doing with your time and energy? Yes, Bill? Davis, who is one of Yogananda's. Um, uh-huh. in, in his altar, he's taken down the picture of Jesus and he's put up his right. own picture. I just find that to be kind of sacrilegious, if you will. Well, um, it's, it's the, the position that Roy Eugene Davis has taken has made Swami Kriyananda very sad for, for Roy's sake. He just feels that Roy has become confused. And in fact, Roy Eugene Davis, for those of you who don't know, came to Yogananda at the age of 18, and he served a few years, he was there just a few years before Yogananda died, and then he wanted to get married and not be a monk, and and there was a huge falling out with the people who were in charge of SRF, and they didn't want him to, if he wasn't going to be a monk, they didn't want him to stay, so they sent him out on his, they just kicked him out. 
as, I mean, he could either be a monk, but he couldn't be married. And uh, so Roy has had to follow his own way. And he has actually done a very commendable job of maintaining his devotion. But recently, he simply declared himself to be the guru and he's put his picture on the altar. And In fact, it was partly because of what Roy did that Swami did write what he wrote because he felt that this is getting very, very confused. Because Yogananda stated that he was the last in the line of gurus, um, meaning that this was a, a, a particular force of avatars coming to change from Kali to Dwapara. But that doesn't mean he's the last of the gurus in the work, because people have to be liberated, or else the teaching's not true, and part of the law of divine liberation is that you will also help others and that you actually become the guru to others. The rule is that you have to liberate six, which means you have to set them firmly on the path. It doesn't mean, as Swami says, that you have to actually fully liberate them because if you had to liberate them and they had to liberate six and they had to liberate six, you could see the whole thing would just come to gridlock and nobody would ever progress. So what that must mean, as Swami speculates, is you must help them get firmly on the path. We joke about that a lot, you know, whenever somebody is particularly difficult, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of toss back and forth whether he's one of your six or one of my six, <laughs> you know. But it's a, it's a, we joke about things that are true, but it's, it's a good thing to remember that in fact you are going to, you have to liberate six others before you yourself will be free. And you might as well get started on it. You might as well start practicing. And, that, and not in an egoic sense, but in a serviceful sense. But yes, what Roy Davis has done is not endorsed by Swamiji. And even I would have an opinion that I think it's unfortunate. It would be presumptuous of me to say more than that, but I think it's unfortunate. Many things that he says in the context of saying that are unfortunate. They just don't have the ring of truth to them. So coming back to, is that, or is that yeah, it's, it was a good thing to bring up. And Swami I'm not sure whether he mentions Roy by name or not, but he refers to him, certainly. Um, and taking Jesus off completely distorts this, because Jesus, you know, Swami, Babaji and Krishna are unified, so Swami took Krishna off, but Master put Jesus in the center for a very good reason, and it's presumptuous to take him off. It's just, it's just not our place to correct what the Guru's doing. You don't always know. You think you know, and then 5, 10, 25 years later you realize you didn't know at all, and thank God you weren't presumptuous enough to really shift things around. It's like you learn to play the piano and you develop terrible technique, but it's more comfortable for you if you don't really listen to your teacher. You'll never really learn to play well. You just can't see from the perspective we're standing at what the implications of our actions are. Now, coming all the way back to what you're saying, I think there comes a point in our spiritual life when our path is formed. And that path is formed by the, the consciousness, the ray of grace that is being perpetuated by not only a guru, but also by his disciples, by his advanced disciples who are in tune with him. And I think, that, I think the relationship is bigger. There may be one individual with whom the relationship is the strongest, um, but that doesn't mean that you wouldn't also, from time to time, be in very close and devotional proximity with others of that same ray. And there's even a concept in India which is called upa guru, which means your temporary or your smaller guru. 
That doesn't mean that the guru himself is not a sat guru. Just for you, he's an upa guru. I know I was really brought to the path by Ramakrishna, and uh, he really served as my upa guru for five years or more. That's just really where the force of inspiration came to me, so much so that even though I knew my connection to Swami, because Swamiji demurred, you know, deferred, demurred to, or whatever the right word is, he wouldn't accept the concept of being guru himself, so he turned us to Yogananda, who was essentially a total stranger to me. My contact was with Kriyananda, and Swami turned me to Yogananda, and so I said, okay. But I didn't know if I had any relationship to Yogananda, where I had a very firm relationship with Ramakrishna. But I just trusted Swami, and I just said, if this is what he wants me to do, this is what I'll do. And I just completely put the question on the shelf. It just seemed like a question I couldn't answer. Because there's another dimension here, which is very important to keep in mind. People say, I don't want to make a commitment till I'm sure. How do I know what my path is? I need to know what my path is. I can't decide. But you see, the reason you can't tell is because our consciousness is not refined enough to tell. And we're so trapped in our reasonable minds that we have no intuition. So we stay there, sitting, trapped in our, in our reasonable minds without any intuition, demanding to have enough intuition to know something that can only be known by intuition, and that basically provides, with all due respect, a wonderful excuse to do nothing. Because then we can just talk about how deeply sincere we are and how much we would act as soon as we know, and as soon as we know we will act, but as long as we don't know we don't act. And gee, what's the result of that? You don't have to act. I mean, I've, I've played that game out. That was the... In, in the book about Swamiji, one of the most important stories in there, because for me it was one of the most important stories, was when I was so desperate to know what God wants of me, and I was so sincerely, hysterically beating down the gates of heaven, demanding that God tell me what to do. And when I presented my just heartfelt, sobbing dilemma to Swamiji about how desperately I wanted to know God's will and how hard it was, Swami said, no, it's not. <laughs> This is what he said. No, it's not. Just like that. No, it's not hard. And that was all he said to me. And I just had to walk home. And I mean, he was very courteous. He wasn't rude as a rule. So when he just said, no, it's not, just let me to sob my eyes out. And I, um, I had to ask, well, it's very hard for me. And then, of course, because I really wanted to know, thank God, it came to me that I didn't want to know because I was really afraid. In this, that particular circumstance, I actually had a very clear idea of what was going to be asked of me and I didn't want any part of it. So my way of protecting myself was to be confused because as long as I was confused, I was doing something. <laughs> but I was preventing myself from doing what I really needed to do. Now, we play that same game out. If I only knew my path, then I would start practicing. But as long as we don't practice, you'll never know your path. The way I resolved it, in, I mean, I, I was greatly helped by the, the, the piece of information I did have unequivocally, which is that Swami Kriyananda was everything I was looking for. He was defining for me the reality of that, and I, who was I to challenge it? The intuition said, this is what I'm looking for, and if he tells me this is what it is, then that's what I'm going to do. But I, I basically, in meditation, I, I said to Ramakrishna, and to Paramahansa Yogananda, guys, this is your problem. <laughs> this is just beyond me. I don't have any capacity to sort this out. I knew that all paths, all that I was dealing with true masters, there was no doubt in my mind 
that the what I was engaged in was were tr- was a true path, and therefore to throw myself into it would develop my consciousness, and that was the whole point. And if in developing my consciousness something that I couldn't understand was revealed to me, then that would be great. And if it wasn't clear to me now, how else could it be clear to me unless I developed my consciousness? So again, I was working with the certainty of Swami. So I just went and I just behaved as if everything was perfectly clear-cut to me. And I just really literally, I practiced what they say, Give, I gave it to God. About a year and a half or a year later, I just woke up one morning and said, of course you belong to Master, what could you be thinking? And I mean, that was it. I didn't worry or think about it even once during that time. It, but because I purified my consciousness by deep and dedicated work, then all of a sudden I could see something that was self-evident that hadn't been before. I mean, when I first asked Swami if I could take Kriya, I really didn't even know if he'd say yes to me because of that inner dilemma. And I sort of said, you know, very tenderly, do you think I could take Kriya? He said, oh, sure, like that. I was so surprised. But it was sort of the first indication that I didn't know anything. (laughs) Well, no, it wasn't the first indication, but it was a dramatic and memorable one. That What do I know? But I'm also saying something else here which is exactly what Swamiji says in that paper. If you're really sincere, you can't just say, I'll just relate to the Guru. You also must relate to the disciples. Because what do you think the Guru is? Otherwise, you get to just play free-for-all with it. You just get to sort of sit alone in your room and you get to make it up because you've precluded anybody else from having any authority over you, which is, with all due respect, just a teeny-weeny bit convenient, isn't it? You know? Nobody, God can speak through my voice, but he can't speak through any other voice at all. Master can speak through me, but he can't speak through anyone else. I don't mean that you should credulously go around and, you know, touch the feet of everyone who's ever taken Kriya, but intelligently and carefully and consciously, you should ask God to talk to you through the human voice of those who at least have a fairly good chance of speaking the truth. I mean, we have Swamiji if nothing else, and we have a lot of us who can tell you what he said. You know, you don't have to take our word for it. I, I rarely say anything that he didn't tell me. And I, as far as I'm able, I never say anything that's inconsistent with what he said. I mean, I have made mistakes. God knows I've made plenty. But I don't consciously make them. I'm very, I'm very careful when I'm presenting the gospel according to Asha. I always want to make sure you know. I mean, you've heard me many times say that. So-and-so said this. I don't know if Master said it. Someone told me that Master said it, but I never heard Swamiji say it. I think it's very important. You have to keep the um, authority straight. But the great, extraordinary richness of this path is not only that we have a whole line of gurus, we have a whole community of disciples, and we have this, wherever his picture is now, you know, we have this extraordinary living disciple, who's an American. He doesn't even speak English with an incomprehensible accent. What an incredible gift for us. Now, who among those is your guru? Gee, that's a good question. Um, What I've always found is be devoted to them all. Yes. This is for the sake of the recording, because I get these terrible complaints that what was the question? So those of you who are new, that's why we're doing it. Okay. I've heard Swami say a few times that since we're all here, we've all been together before. Right. Or we've all been disciples of Master before. Right. 
but there always has to have been a first time. So then I think, well. Okay, if, no, that's a good question. <laughs> um, there has to have been a first time. I put the question to Swamiji in a different way. It was like, if the relationship with the guru, well, it's, it's not important at the moment. Let me, let me get, come at this differently. This is a very elevated spiritual path. You know, this is a path in which there's just no bells and whistles. And as someone said, you know, a lot of people talk about overcoming the ego, but you guys really mean it. I mean, we really do mean it. You know, we don't have a drum kit during our uh, uh, Sunday worship service. We don't play electric guitars. You know, we just, we don't compromise. We just play Swamiji's music, which is a very elevated, very refined kind of music. And we don't give any quarter. I mean, yes, Swamiji wrote Material Success Through Yogic Principles. Um, and it is really, you can get rich by following that course. You really can. Because it's, very, it's a very, very, very powerful, true prosperity teaching. But it's all about essentially renouncing the fruits of all your labor and then everything will come to you serving God and then it will all come to you. Everything on this path really isn't, does not compromise. And I actually recently was thinking that maybe I've been compromising too much. You know, trying to make everybody feel comfortable with wherever you are. But we don't want to be comfortable with where we are. We don't want to justify it. You know, it's a, it's a very fine line. And in my position, I'm, I sometimes, I've tried to be nicer rather. I used to be too harsh, so I've been trying to be nicer. But, there, but you have to be true. Now, the end point of all of that is you just don't get on this path like when you're just out of the box, just beginning to think about spiritual things. You have to really earn your way to this path. And I don't mean it earn it like you know, some reward. You have, to, um, you have to learn a lot of lessons before you can look at life and really want Kriya Yoga. You know, be serious enough to really want Kriya Yoga. And therefore that means that we've all sort of been working on this project for a really long time. And yeah, there were lots of times when we were newer to it. But the ones who really are here and are really sticking, it's not the first time for you. The ones who are the first times are the ones who come in like this and go out the door. You know, by the time you've settled, it's certainly speaking of yourself, settled in it with the force that you've settled into it, it's just, it's, it's an old home for you by now. You know, it takes a long time to really get to here. It's very, 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 very good karma. I mean, we have to just say that to ourselves. We should say that to ourselves all the time. This is very, 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 very good karma. I know Davy put it once, if we don't make a lot of spiritual progress in this life, that we have nobody to blame but ourselves. I don't particularly like that because I don't like the idea of blaming it, but what she means is the blessings are just there to pick up with a spoon. If... Uh, if we're at all interested in just lifting our spoon. Um, and you meet people, you know, maybe more in the role that I've played in my life than yours. You just meet people and there's a quality in the eyes of people that you just know this is not the first time. People who are the first time, they just have a very different look on their face. And you just know that you'll see them again. We'll all see them again. And we'll all just keep working together until we're all free. Durga had a beautiful dream once where there was a whole crowd of people that she didn't recognize all the faces, but she knew they were all Master's disciples and all part of Swami's family. 
sort of how you think of it. Master's, master has this big, big reality, and then there's the little Ananda family within it. And Dayamata has her family, and Gyanamata had hers, Oliver Black had hers, Dr. Lewis, and, and you know, everyone, Jyotish and Devi, everybody has their little family within this thing. And uh, she said, we were all holding hands, and periodically, someone would just sort of dematerialize and turn into light and, and elevate. You know, it was the, the impression was that, the, you know, they would finish their earthly karma and they would just... It wasn't death, it was liberation. And she said what was so touching about it was that everyone was equally joyful if anybody was freed. There was no sense of, oh, I wish that was me. It was just exactly the same sense of celebration, no matter who was moving. This is such a, a beautiful image, isn't that? You know, of, of the unity of the spiritual path. And in the Bhagavad Gita, it says, Arjuna says to Krishna, what if I renounce the world and make this supreme effort, and I don't succeed in finding God? And I've renounced the world and I didn't have the pleasures of the world and I didn't make it to God. I mean, like, basically, do I just fall flat and have nothing? And that, that was the, the phrase that prompted Krishna to say, my devotee is never lost. No spiritual effort is ever wasted. But then Krishna goes on to say all the things that happen to you if you make a sincere spiritual effort in one life and, and still have more to go. And among other things, including being drawn to a spiritual path and being born into a noble household or a wealthy household where your desires can be fulfilled easily and quickly. And uh, uh, being introduced to the teachings young is that you will be uh, allowed to live in a community of disciples. So that, in other words, you'll have brothers and sisters on the path. So just the mere fact that we are in a community or drawn to a community is a sign that we've done this before. Otherwise, we wouldn't have that good karma. We'd be struggling on our own. But you see, it's all consistent because you have to deeply desire it, and if you deeply desire it, it comes to you. When I was in the, in the early, early time, well, it, it's just, you just watch people's lives, and people who really, really are serious and want the spiritual path make it work in their lives. And people who, who, who partially want it, it partially works. It's just you, you, just, you get what your, your sincere vibration is. A lot of that was actually out of the chapters that we just read, believe it or not, interestingly. Did that answer your question? That's why I went into it so much. You know, all of this is, there's a chapter in here called, um, how does he phrase it? The need for a personal savior. That's what it is. Because, you know, God is our, uh, Christ is our personal savior. These, these last chapters, which at least I was just reading, were just somehow the... The extraordinary sweetness of Christ was really coming through. The need for a personal savior. And just that whole... That, there's so many wonderful teachings in Christianity in, in the way it's taught. You know, just that whole thought of the personal savior. Um, not your personal savior like you own him. But the, the way Swamiji describes how the avatar is impersonal in the sense that he has no personal motive in relating to you. But he's utterly personal in that he has this 
literally unconditional, eternal concern for your well-being as an individual. So this idea of having a personal savior is a true thought that in all this great infinity uh, uh, of creation that our individual prayer is heard. A prayer of love went up from earth and you responded. A ray of your light flashed out from infinity, burst downward through night skies of consciousness and was born on earth for the redemption of mankind in human form. So many times when we're going through that festival, I really want to stop and just give a little tutorial about what we just heard there. I mean, I know I, this is how I do it by coming to this. A prayer of love went up from earth and you responded. And whose prayer would that be? This is what um, Swamiji is trying to say through the Bible and through the Gita and all of his writings. This is not, these are not abstractions. These are not cosmic grounds of being that just move around. This is a very intimate relationship that we have. And it's that deeply sincere longing that draws the Master to us and draws this whole ray of teaching in the community to us. It's, it's who we are. And, and the necessity for that is very simple. This, we have, uh, he, he describes in, in this book, he's talking here, of this whole part of these, these three elements that he's describing in the sequence of pages we were reading. First, he, he talks about Satan. And, and uh, Swamiji says that Satan is one of Jesus' contributions to Sanatana Dharma. Not that the concept was unknown before, but that particular way of expressing it, to express that there's this universal being that you can personify, that's sort of going around continuously, actively trying to keep us from um, moving into the light by, by tempting us. That's how it's called in the Bible, the tempter. After 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted because this force comes and says, okay, this, your consciousness is moving in this expanded direction. Now I'm going to tempt you. I'm going to tempt you with everything that you've done in the past. And Satan has an advantage, is how Swamiji describes it, because he, he can remind us of all the comfortable realities we've always lived with, our selfish desires, the fulfillments that we're used to, not having to put out so much energy, just settling back into the um, way things have always been. Swamiji quotes a, a, an expression in French, which is called nostalgia for the mud, which is just like a, a sort of a, a, a wonderful concept. My friend Arati and I once, we were at, uh, we were at the Yuba River on a summer afternoon, and we started just being silly and playing together, and there was a big rock that sort of came out from the water in a slant and we we played um, evolution and we were we'd start like water creatures and then we'd gradually come up onto the land and we we called the game up from the muck and we would sort of gradually evolve until we had the responsibility of full, being fully on land and then in some way or another we would be tempted and we would feel nostalgia for the mud and we'd go back down to the mud again but that's really, isn't that the cycle that we just go through in our lives so many times? We just settle ourselves so strongly. You know, you'll go into seclusion and you'll have your meditation routine and you'll be doing so many kriyas and it's just so clear to you that this is just what you're going to do. And then you come out again and just, 
you get tempted to just go right back into whatever it was we were going to do, or you get uh, you're in harmony with the people around you, and then you get tempted to just be nasty again, and and just all these different things happen. And so Master uh, Swami talks about how Jesus tried to express this to people, and there's a there's a statement in this book which is so interesting about how the only absolute reality is the infinite consciousness, and he's laid the foundation for it in the earlier part of the book, that everything in creation, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and everything that was made was made from this substance. That's how it's put by St. John, and in the Indian scriptures it's put in lots of other ways, but the end point is the creation was manifested. So everything is really divine, but there is this force that, that wants us to move away from that light. But Swamiji said it can never arrive anywhere. It's just going out farther and farther from its source, and therefore inevitably the energy will dissipate. Isn't that a beautiful and simple way to say it? Because it's moving out from source, inevitably the energy will dissipate. And what that also means is even the most evil among us inevitably the suffering of their own evil will, will cause them to lose heart for that way of life and then they will gradually turn back. I mean, we've seen it. You can see it in small examples everywhere. And in this book, he talks about Judas, in fact. That Judas was a very highly evolved soul. He was one of Christ's 12 disciples. And Jesus didn't just pick those disciples randomly. They were deeply devoted highly advanced disciples from past lives, and Jesus had those 12, and one of them was Judas. Judas just had this unresolved karma in his mind. When we come to the Easter celebration, we talk about this, but the way Swami explains it was, it wasn't that that Judas did not believe in Jesus, but Judas developed an arrogant sense that he knew better than Jesus did about how his mission should be conducted. And the intention Master describes, it's fascinating the way he says it, Judas's intention was to force Jesus to, to display his power and to claim his position in the world because Judas had a worldly mind. And he, he wanted, um, some traditions say that Judas was of a higher class, that he was more educated, more socially prominent, that his, he was more, had a, a stronger relationship with those in power, he was always wanting Jesus to cultivate those in power and not just mock them. I mean, just think about it. Because these are just people just like us. Here Jesus is. He's consorting with people who are on the out- outcasts of society. Mary Magdalene was an outcast, and he allowed her to express devotion to him in ways that really were not quite done. She came in and anointed his feet with costly ointment, and that was when Judas said this should have been the been sold, you know, this is costly ointment, it costs so much money, it should have been sold and not wasted in this way, and the money given to the poor. And the Bible said, Judas said this not because he was really devoted to the poor, but because he was a thief and he was attached to money. Which is again Yogananda confirmed. But Judas had a sort of more worldly attitude about everything. So he he was he was putting himself in opposition to his own guru in terms of what his guru ought to do. And he wanted, to, he wanted his guru to come into a confrontation with the Roman power because what Judas expected then 
was that the great power within Jesus, which he fully believed in, would then be forced into um, expression. But of course, he, he, he couldn't anticipate what the actual um, end of that would be, which was that Jesus absolutely refused to participate even in the situation. He, was, he kept silence. He wouldn't defend himself. Except at one point he said, even now, my heavenly Father would send legions of angels to rescue me. See, this is what Judas knew was possible, but it's not, it's God, not God's will. And when Pontius Pilate pleaded with him to give Pontius Pilate a, a way to release Jesus, Jesus refused. He could have, but it wasn't meant to be. So Judas's absolute despair was not because he'd lost faith in Jesus, but because he realized how much he'd wronged his guru. And so he killed himself. I mean, he just couldn't go on living at that point. And then Swami writes in here, 2,000 years later, that Judas had expiated that sin. And again, this is the discipleship question. He took, he, Judas incarnated as an Indian Swami, as a disciple of, of Ramakrishna Paramahansa. And Yogananda said, I knew Judas in this lifetime. And what was he like? He was very quiet, kept very much to himself. He still had a little bit of attachment to money, Yogananda said. And when other of the ashramites teased him a little about it, Ramakrishna said, no, leave him alone. He suffered enough for that already. So Jesus came to Ramakrishna and said, I'm sending you one of mine. Take care of him. So who is the guru? You know, you can't, you just can't make it so simple. You know, there, there's this power that's always taking care of you. But Judas even was, okay, now at the end of all of that, which is what I was starting to say, was there's this force that draws us out constantly. And we, and we make these continuous wrong judgments and they leave impressions. They leave vrittis of energy. And then Swami writes about the highway of the spine, the only way well, everything that Jesus writes is exactly what yoga is. Everything, the whole, and he talks about the book of Revelations and goes through parts of the book of Revelations, how all those symbols have absolutely nothing to do with the rise and fall of civilizations. They have to do with the rise and fall of inner consciousness. It's all about the spine and the chakras and the spiritual eye. It's, it's the inner highway because that's the only place that God can be realized because we are made of divine consciousness and we have identified with our egos and now we have to identify with divinity and that comes when the kundalini is liberated. Except all of these lifetimes make these deep impressions on our spine, on the chakra. And we live so identified with the ego, it's like the ego simply does not have the capacity to perceive itself or, or, and it certainly doesn't have the power to dissolve itself. And this comes for the need for a personal savior. Um, I'm going to take a little break now, then we'll go on with this, okay? Let's take about, not, not quite ten minutes, okay? West, I'm teaching, what was the star of Bethlehem? Right, that's a good topic. I like that. Um, and then... Uh, Sunday services, is there something? I don't think I have a Saturday class. I don't think so. And uh, 
We have uh, Christmas parties at our house on Saturday night and Sunday night. You're all invited to those. And then the following weekend is the all-day meditation, Sunday service, Christmas Eve midnight service, 10 to midnight, Christmas Day children's service, Christmas banquet. It's all so much fun. Yes, Lisa. Oh, yes, um, Tagini and Raghu are teaching on Saturday. They're teaching Walking with St. Francis. Walk with those who walked with Christ. It's a beautiful class. I knew there was something special happening. It's just not on my personal calendar. That's right. About St. Francis and St. Teresa. It's a great class. Okay. So let me make that one work. All right. Do we have any questions about what we've been talking about at all? Okay. Now let me think where I was then and what I wanted to say. Oh, I know where it, where it was. It was the, the whole, and Swamiji tries to address it, you know, as, as strongly as he can. The way Master put it very simply, the, the mere thought that you can, um, okay, that's, uh, that was where I was. We were talking about, and, and Swami talks about the serpent power, and he draws all these analogies out of the Bible. He, he, he makes a very interesting interpretation of one um, passage in the Bible that I'd never really thought of it the way it should be. He, I've heard him talk about this before. Let me see if I can read it directly. It's about Moses raising the serpent in the wilderness. You just love it when new ideas come to you. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, Swami goes into a long description about how this particular phrase is, is, is placed in the Gospel of John very early in the life of Christ. And there's many sort of speculations because people tend to say that what that means, the Son of Man must be lifted up, was talking about him being lifted up on the cross and crucified. Swamiji raises very, the very serious question that the crucifixion was not even imagined at that stage in Jesus' mission. I mean, even when it happened, it happened just in a matter of days. You know, Jesus went to the garden, was arrested, and within a matter of days he was crucified and had died, and then, of course, was resurrected. But it wasn't as if, as if anybody anticipated that. You could tell that by the absolute panic that set in among the disciples when Jesus was arrested and crucified, and almost none of them were there, able to stay with him. If this had been a and understood part of the direction of his life, there would have been more inner um, comprehension of it than there actually was. So Swamiji first raises the question that, you know, this is, this is out of place, or else it was um, appended into the gospel later on after Jesus was crucified, they were wanting to show it. But then after saying all these things, Swamiji just gives a much more and much more interesting explanation. Um, because, first of all, he, he speaks of, of, of the fact that Jesus came into a continuing tradition. He's very harsh with the Jewish people in this section of the book. And, in fact, Swamiji, when he wrote this, and when it was still in manuscript form, he sent it out to the many Jews among this work and just sort of asked us, what did we think? You know, could he, could he really do this? Could he say all of this? And, of course, we knew he was going to because it was truthfully spoken. But nonetheless, it's not very politically correct to speak as directly and as, as much as he had about the karma that was incurred by the Jewish people by having the Messiah come to them specifically 
and then not accepting it, and how that karma has actually continued. And Swami even speaks very bluntly that, you know, the restoration of the, the Jewish homeland was a sign of that karma being expiated, but he said he fears that that karma is being dissipated again because they're not taking it with, in the proper spiritual tone, but are explicitly atheistic, non-religious, or, or fanatically religious, and anyway, going on with that. But in the context, Swamiji said he asked, Moses, he asked Swam, uh, Master if Moses was an avatar. In other words, was Judaism a true religion? And Master said yes, because Moses said he raised the serpent in the wilderness. And throughout this whole section, we're talking about the, the kundalini power being called the serpent power. The reason it's called the serpent power is because it moves in a serpentine manner. He talks about the way it feels when it comes up the spine and it moves in this coil that it, it uncoils and it causes the body even to this gesture, this movement that I'm making, although it's, it's clockwise, not counterclockwise, that the body moves when the, it comes up. And it's just widely, the image of the serpent is widely understood because that's how it's experienced. And um, wilderness has always been a symbol for um, the solitude and the quiet. And then uh, Swami goes and talks about the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, you know, a, lo- a, a, a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and thou in the wilderness, wilderness is enough for me. And he talks about how that's all a very mystical interpretation also, the bread of life, the wine of divine communion, the wilderness, the silence. It's not at all a, a love poem that he's describing there. But then... Uh, with Moses in this particular section, he, John is speaking to the Jews as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, meaning those who had the true understanding and still remembered their true tradition knew that Moses had raised the kundalini in the silence of meditation as Moses lifted up in the spirit of... He said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now what Swami starts saying here is that when he's using the Son of Man, he's speaking universally about every man. He's not speaking individually about Jesus. In other words, every child of the infinite, every son of God who is living as a man, as a human, must also raise up the same serpent in the wilderness. Isn't that just a a, a wonderful explanation? It was just... All of a sudden, so, um, and that whosoever believeth in him, and belief meaning has experienced it, shall not perish, but will have eternal life, even as Moses did. There's just so much in these scriptures. Just You just look at those words, and all of a sudden, these whole other realities. And what, what Swamiji is emphasizing here in this particular section of the book, again and again, is how universal... The teachings of Jesus are number one, and also how um, expansively hopeful they are for the individual, because that's the great confusion of Christianity, is that the possibility of Christ's consciousness is no longer active in it. It's, it's now just become this, this passive hope of being saved without, again, the, the, there's no capacity to apply your own intelligence or even your own dynamic will to that process. But that's not at all what Jesus taught. Even so, the Son of Man, even as Moses did, the Son 
all of us must raise ourselves up, raise up that serpent power. And then he goes on to talk about, in, in this chapter, all about what the kundalini is. But then, as coming back to the other chapter, the need for a personal savior, he, he, he also, Swamiji, quotes a conversation he himself had with uh, a devotee who Swamiji had been teaching that everyone needs a guru, that sooner or later on the spiritual path you have to have a guru, that liberation is not possible. And a man essentially came and challenged Swamiji on the point. And so, you know, do I need a guru? And Swamiji's answer was simply, no, you don't. You don't need a guru until you know you need a guru. <laughs> because how can you have a guru until you know you need it? And so it's not like God will break it down, you know, break down. He'll just let you go on in whatever way you want to go on. It's not like you can't do anything. But sooner or later, what simply happens, it's a very simple thing that happens. We reach the limit of our own efforts. And when we reach the limits of our own efforts, then we ourselves know there has to be an answer. I cannot find my way out of this labyrinth on my own. I I was contemplating recently, and I just sort of present this as a dilemma, this, I've been trying to understand sort of what the mask, what, what, what people are thinking these days. And, I, and there's a very strong um, kind of thought form among spiritually minded people of the tremendous need to be guided from within. I want to do what God wants. I want, to, I want God to guide me. It's, it's all in God's hands. It'll all work out. It's perfect. And all this very strong thought. And there's also a certain thought that says, I would like to be guided by a God-realized living master, a kind of sort of sentimental thought or a a half-form thought over here. Of course, there aren't a lot of God-realized living masters walking around, so you can want that without it actually really impinging on your reality. But what I don't see is a tremendous desire to be a disciple. To be a disciple in the real sense which is to actually recognize, humbly recognize the limits of one, one's own ego to guide you. There's, there's a certain, um, I don't want to use the word lip service because I don't want to be too unkind, but there's a certain um, attempt at that. But this very deep thought, and this is how, it's such a simple thought. God can speak through me, but he can't speak to me through anyone else. That's how it really translates. Because I need to, I need to be guided from within myself. And the, and the implication of that is that no one else could get a true intuition. Only you can get a true intuition. And only you can know yourself. I mean, now, there is some truth in it because we do have to feel everything that we do has to resonate from within. But we just simply reach a point in our lives where our own egoically based method of moving through the world has crashed us into so many walls and just left us bleeding and broken so many times that we just become a little bit less sure of it and eventually become a whole lot less sure of it and eventually a prayer of love went up from earth and God responded and and that's then the master comes for you the master comes for you because you have become a disciple There's always this question, how do you find your spiritual path? Well, first you become a disciple. And that's that's really the truth. You can't, it's just what I was saying earlier about you want to know for sure before you 
go somewhere, but you can never know for sure until you apply yourself to a true teaching and clarify your consciousness. In the same way, you can't attract a guru until you understand how to be a disciple. In other words, until you have the humility to really be receptive. That's why those lines in the Bible, as many as received him, are so powerful, because the guru's consciousness is out there, and the guru's instruments are everywhere. And this is where Swamiji's uh, statement, which is where I started, you know, the guru's instruments are everywhere, but you won't know that they're there unless you, you have become a disciple. Otherwise, they'll just pass you by. And it'll be, well, that's nice. I mean, Swamiji, it's been for all these years that we've lived at Ananda because he's never asserted his role. In recent years, he's standing up much more strongly. Um, in the last decade, I would say. Prior to that, he was so self-effacing. And at the same time, for those who had ears to hear, if, if you treated him as if he was speaking in Master's voice, then he did speak in Master's voice. That's the only way I can put it. But there would always be that, well, that's what you think, Swami. Now I'll go into meditation and see what Master thinks with that sort of a statement like that. You sort of say, fine. But the point is, there's, this comes to a certain point, and this is a very delicate balance. Because on the other hand, you have to work to develop your own intuition, but you have a better chance of developing your own intuition if you're receptive to the guidance of anyone but especially those whom you have had enough experience with to believe that they at least have some good ideas. Teswami used to always describe himself. He, he would say, well, I did live with Master. I did know him. I have studied these teachings for a long time. So it's possible, you know, that I could have some insight. I mean, and he just puts it like that just because that's a perfectly reasonable thing for, for one to say to oneself, you know, it's not really helpful for these magnificent claims to be made because you have no way of verifying them. It takes all your power away from you. And even in our inner relationship with Jesus, who's not here anymore, our inner relationship with the Bible, we need to make it extremely real. You know, I certainly know that my own mind has its limitations. I certainly know that my ego might not be the best thing. So maybe it's possible that I could learn something or receive something else. But it always has to be kept on a, a level of reason and on a very humble level. But that's where Swamiji says there just comes a point where there has to be a personal savior. That's what Sanatana Dharma says. There has to be this deep individual relationship that then manifests in many other forms. This is where these teachings come together. You have this deep inner relationship with Jesus, but Swami writes in here, what is it that's really kept Christianity alive? Well, it's been the presence of the saints. That's what's done it. It's because they come again and again. You know, St. Francis, whom everyone recognizes as a, uh, you know, a living Christ in his own reality, just he, he, he renewed the whole teaching. The whole church was falling to pieces. And the whole Christianity was falling to pieces. And Francis just stepped into it. And he had so much power and so much joy. And he restored to the whole... Um, the whole reality of being a disciple of Christ, this living power, because he knew, he knew that Christ was a living being, he knew the joy of Jesus. Even the Christmas celebration, you know the whole Christmas crash idea? That was invented by, by St. Francis. It didn't exist before then. It was an inspiration he had for, for lifting and restoring people's devotion. And one 
uh, Christmas Eve night. He, 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 he brought everyone into the forest and he'd created this replica of the, the scene in which Jesus was born. That was just his divine inspiration. But just think what a renewing power of devotion that had on all of Christianity. You see, it brought all that sweetness into it. And then, and then Jesus turned everyone's attention not only to Christ, but also to the presence of God in all of creation. People attribute to St. Francis that he worshipped nature, but he didn't worship nature. But he was the first to direct people's attention to the presence of God manifesting through creation and making it a part of the devotion to God and to Jesus to also be devoted to the smallest of his creatures. And then St. Teresa of Avila also who, who with her deep, profound mysticism and the writing that she did and the re- re- restoration of the cloistered um, inner life, you know, just brought to a powerful focus the potential for true God communion. And the books that she wrote were just books about yoga. It wasn't she didn't use the same words, but anyone who practices yoga, who reads her writing sees what she was doing when she was teaching people how to meditate. She even said that the seat of the soul is at the crown of the head. Swamiji puts that in the book here. And she talks about the formless Christ and the state of prayer that is beyond words and thought. These were not part of the, of the understanding of Christianity until St. Teresa came and was able to bring that to life again. And so in this, in this way, the, um, the personal, and then of course, Francis had all those disciples that he, he was the one who brought them to Christ. He never replaced Christ. He never pretended to because collectively that was their devotion. One way to think of it, you know, when you think of the, how the disciples work for the avatars, if you think of it as if you go to take a piano lesson, there was a man who, and his name was Gary Goldschneider. He's now... I think he does astrology or something now. He's now well known for something completely else. But years ago, he, he lived near Ananda village and he is an extremely talented uh, pianist. And he played all of Beethoven, Mozart? I think it was Beethoven. All the piano sonatas that Beethoven wrote. I think he had memorized them. He would do these, he would take this truck around with a piano in the back and he would sit down and do, just pull the piano out and do these concerts. and. He was an extraordinary musician, and once he and Swami Kriyananda were having a very interesting discussion about music, you know, just on a very high level, and all of a sudden, uh, Gary just couldn't say it in words anymore, and he jumped up, and there was a grand piano in Swami's house, and he ran over, and he sat at the piano to illustrate it. And what was so astonishing, I was witnessing the event, was that there was no, there was no interlude between him sitting at the piano and the sudden presence in the room of this extraordinary music. I mean, there was no, there was no Gary in between it. He just manifested the music, just boom, like that. And uh, when he gave a concert somewhere afterwards, I, I said, just, you know, music was magnificent. It was just so fantastic to be in the presence of that music. And he said, thank you so much for praising the music and not the musician, you know. And when, when, and in the room, when he brought the music in like that, I said something to him. I said it was as if the music was always sailing through the room, and you just suddenly sort of put a, something up to catch it. And he said that's how it feels to him, you know, that the music is always there, and then he'll catch it. 
like that, and then everybody else can hear it. Um, but if, you, let us say, you're devoted to some form of music and you go to a teacher to learn to play it, you, what you're learning together is the music. You're not learning the teacher, you're learning the music. And yet, the teacher makes it possible for you to have that experience of music and together that's what you... Now, in the guru-disciple, because you asked this question earlier and I was talking a lot about this, you know, in the tradition of Christianity, no one has ever replaced Christ. But Teresa of Avila certainly was the guru to the, the nuns who, and many of the men who came to her. St. Francis certainly was a guru to those he, he took care of. And, and Swami writes in here in the, in the Orthodox tradition on the Eastern side, they have the Russian Orthodox, they have a, a word called starets, which means guru, really. And everyone has to have a, a starets. You have to have the one who's going to take you because if you work on it at all, you know your mind will just trick you. So you would come to be a disciple of Francis and Jesus would be the music that you're learning to play. Beyond that, God would be the music. But nonetheless, the one who teaches you to play it. Also, how, how could you not be utterly devoted? Because without that one, how would you ever have learned? Yes. Christian church, but got really messed up with father confessors and priests and, you know, people who were supposed to be able to help others to connect with the teachings and to find God, but it, obviously it, it got really messed up. Well, it's common sense. I mean, that was, even St. Paul said that within the family of Christ, I am the father of this family. I mean, St. Paul went around and he was converting everyone. They never, Paul, Paul converted all these people who never knew Christ, never knew Jesus. Jesus was already gone before Paul even started. And then Paul went around and told the whole world about Jesus. To whom would those people be grateful except to Paul? Who was guiding them? It was Paul. Who was the instrument? It was Paul. And he himself said, within this family, I am the father of this family. You know, Jesus is the father of the whole family, but I'm the father of this little family. Because that's the way it works. Think about it. I mean, everybody, there, there comes a point in your spiritual life when someone helps you, or many people help you. However you call it, whatever words you want to use, and the greater the consciousness of that person, the greater their relationship is, the, the greater their capacity to help you. But the attitude of discipleship is what makes it work. And, and the, in America, we're so concerned. I mean, Swami calls it in the, that paper he wrote, the guru sweepstakes, where we're so concerned trying to say how great this one is and how great that one is and how much karma this one has and how little karma that one has. He just says it's just picking it all up from the wrong end. He said it's the attitude of discipleship, which is, you know, many people can teach me. And then the relationships, just they just evolve. We don't have to... If we have an attitude of discipleship, we don't have to worry about it because it naturally assumes its right form. When we don't have the attitude of discipleship is when it gets so confusing. When we don't trust our own experience sufficiently to be open. That's another part of it. We're just afraid. We're always afraid somebody's going to do us wrong, that I won't have the judgment, that I won't be able to tell, that somebody's going to take me. But if we have the attitude of a disciple, it, it's, we're not afraid like that. 
a true disciple is strong in himself and open to everyone. It's a very difficult, it's a very, uh, not difficult, it's a very lovely balance point to keep. Does that make sense? Okay, do we have any other questions or thoughts? Um, I just one more thought. When Swamiji was talking about the saints, he I just marked this phrase here. He said, Christianity today, however, has become a wilting plant. It's denied the living water of direct interpersonal experience of God. Religion needs to be continuously renewed by the living presence of true saints who have deeply practiced the high teachings and realized their truth in themselves. And then he says, most Christians today are like the old wineskins incapable of accepting and containing the ever-fresh, dynamic, new wine of truth. And then Swamiji states again at this point in the book that this is why Master was sent to America by Jesus to bring the new wine. Now, whether or not it will go into the old wineskins or not, we don't know. When Swamiji first wrote the oratorio all those years ago, the first thing he had us do was make a tremendous effort to get the oratorio accepted and heard in the, the mainstream churches. Um, and there was the, it went on for several years. There were, he, he published it as Donald Walters. We didn't talk about Ananda. People would contact, you know, Catholic churches and Episcopal churches, and, and we'd send little groups out, and they would perform it, and we would perform it under assumed names. I mean, we just, we'd never hint about yoga or Ananda or Kriyananda or anything. And just made this huge effort, and all of which ended in nothing much at all. At the end of all that effort, Swami sort of said, well, he said, I didn't think it would work. He said, but I felt before I just gave up on those churches, we had to at least give them a chance, was how he put it. And I, I was, he said it in a light way, but it wasn't a light thought. Uh, I was reminded that's exactly what happened with Paul. There's so many parallels between the life of Swami and of Paul. Some people assert that, that Swami was Paul. Swami's response to that is, first he said, I never really much cared for Paul's personality. And the other was, I would like to think that Paul would be liberated by now, he wouldn't be coming back. But he, he admits too that the parallels are astonishing. But you see, Paul tried to get Jesus' teaching accepted in the temples and the synagogues. But gradually, the, um, the, the Jews who were devoted to Jesus were increasingly marginalized and pushed out by the existing priests. Until it was like, even though Jesus said he came for the lost tribes of Israel, they didn't want to hear it. And Paul wasn't about to just go into silence, so he just went out looking for someone who would listen. And he carried the teaching to the Gentiles, and that was the beginning of what became Christianity and the beginning of the split between the two. Peter and James and the other disciples mostly stayed within the Jewish tradition and just remained a very um, oppressed sect within Judaism. And in fact, there was this critical moment in which they were starving because it was a communal economy and the um, existing, the power structure of the Jewish people had just pushed the Jews who were devoted to Christ so far out that they couldn't get work, they couldn't be supported. Paul was out proselytizing 
to the Gentiles, and there was a, a great deal of conflict between Peter and Paul, because Peter felt that Paul, in turning his back on Judaism, was actually not being true to Jesus. See how complex these things are? And Peter, Paul, who was having all this success out here, gathered up a great deal of money from all those devotees of Jesus and brought it back to save the, um, the ones who were still trying to work with in Jerusalem. And once that happened, that was the beginning of the reconciliation between the two factors, uh, set, uh, factions. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, thinking about Swami's effort to move the oratorio out into the Christian churches. And just as Swamiji said, you know, it's all in place. They have all that wonderful real estate. <laughs> you know, it's just all in place. Wouldn't it just be better just to renew it? Just to renew it from the inside? But new wine and old wineskins. And it, the effort just really never took hold. And so we've gone on the way we've gone. Yes, Bill? Donald Walters? Um, why does Swami still use J. Donald Walters? He feels, this was a controversy within Ananda, which I was on the other side of it to such an extent that Swami said I actually delayed his ability to use J. Donald Walters for quite a number of years until I got out of a position where I could protest. Um, Swamiji is interested in spreading the teaching, and he felt, felt at a certain point that a great deal of what he had to say could reach a wider audience if people didn't think it came from a, an Indian source. That people would take the teachings on, it, on their own terms and would be more open to them if they didn't have to overcome the obstacle of a Swami. So almost all his music is published as J. Donald Walters, almost all of it. And uh, a great many of his books are published as J. Donald Walters, the ones that he feels um, stand alone and would stand better without the Kriyananda attachment to them. Well, see, this is, I never agreed with him using the J. Donald Walters name, and, but much to my, and, and only much later did I realize that he was so respectful of my protests that he waited till I was out of that position before he started doing it. They would have done it much earlier if I hadn't been there protesting against it. And I wasn't protesting for any real reason. I was just protesting. <laughs> you know, it's just really embarrassing. You live with the same people your whole life. You have to eat a lot of crow in the end. Um, and I don't know. It's still, it's still a question that's discussed internally as to whether that J. Donald Walters is worth doing or whether the Swami Kriyananda is the name that he's known by. We ought to just stand by it. So I say it's up for discussion. Swamiji has his own vote, he's, and he's the biggest vote, and he's been voting. <laughs> Okay? Well, that's the whole story. Bless you.